Well, hello and good morning uh, again. Glad that you are here. Good morning, uh, those of you who are joining us via live stream. Thank you uh, as well for joining us. We're returning where we left off in Mark's gospel this morning. We're returning to Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. This is a familiar scene, the calming of the storm. But let me say just a few things to help uh, get us caught up a bit. Mark is that kind of writer telling us about Jesus, of course, but that kind of writer seems to be uh, always uh, organized. He uh, tells the story of Jesus in such a way that he's clearly organizing the life and ministry of his Savior. Now, of course, he's sitting with Peter. He's hearing uh, from Peter these experiences, and by the Holy Spirit, he's uh, writing down uh, what he hears. But he seems to be writing in a pretty ordered way. Just before uh, this passage, we uh, have seen a section in which Jesus is teaching his disciples according to parables. This is uh, Mark chapter 4. And there, in fact, we find uh, four parables, and we're told just before the passage we are about to look at this morning that Jesus is teaching in parables, but he's also explaining how to understand the parables. He's doing that with his disciples. He's teaching along the sea, and uh, as far as we can tell, there's still a crowd of people there. And then before Mark chapter 4, Mark had given us a, a series of pictures in which Jesus is experiencing a rising opposition and things intensify so much, this is Mark chapters 2 and 3, things intensify so much that uh, leaders from Jerusalem begin looking for Jesus, coming to uh, hear him but also to trap him. Again, that's Mark chapters 2 and 3. And the scene that we're looking at uh, this morning is preparing us for uh, what's to come. We're actually uh, going to see Jesus in Mark chapter 6 uh, send out the disciples in pairs to uh, teach. We're also going to see in Mark chapter 6 the death of John the Baptist. And so what we're, what we're looking at beginning this morning is we're looking at these miracles that, uh, that Jesus performs, uh, but they're miracle, miracles that aren't always received well. There's a bit of a challenge on the backside of those miracles. And that's where we are right now. So from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, all the way up to the very beginning of Mark chapter 6, miracles that aren't received exactly the way uh, we would hope. Well, little theologians here and little theologians at home watching on TV, uh, I'd like for you to draw a picture for me. It's a bit destructive. Moms and dads, if you'll allow them, I'd like for little theologians to draw a picture of a FedEx van. We see them all over the town, right? A FedEx van or a UPS van. Uh, draw one of those. Of course, I like all-wheeled vehicles, so you would guess that I would have you draw something like that. But as you're drawing it, cut the top off of it. Hollow out its insides. FedEx van, cut the top off, hollow out its insides. You're going to hear me mention that picture later in the, in the sermon. Well, our passage begins at Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35. Would you please join me in prayer, and then we'll read the passage together. 
Father, thank you for meeting us this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Would you use uh, these words that I present from this pulpit to be your words for your people and your words for those who are not yet your people that they might learn about Jesus too. We thank you for doing this in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, or were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of our Lord. As I said, Mark is a very organized writer. I feel as though I need to show that to you. At times, it may seem as though this uh, ordered presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus is accidental, but uh, I'm not so sure that's the case. The Holy Spirit seems to be at work in a very ordered way in Mark's pen. Let me see if I can't show that to you. Uh, Look at the text, would you? I want you to see several uh, pairs that arise to the surface. a dual presentation of images that show up. Here, look at verse 37. You'll see what I mean. The very conflict of the story, uh, it's a great windstorm, but it's also waves that are breaking into the boat. So you see windstorm and waves in verse 37, wind and waves. And you see that again in verse 38. Jesus speaks both to the wind, he rebukes the wind, and he speaks also to the sea. He said to the sea. There it is again wind and waves. In verse 39, he says just two words. It looks like three in the ESV, but it's in, in the Greek, just two words. Peace, be still. That's verse 39. And, and, and then also in verse 39, uh, Mark tells us that both the wind ceases and there was a great calm. Perhaps that great calm refers to the waves. Wind ceases, great calm. And then in verse 40, Jesus, he mentions two things, doesn't he? He mentions the fear, the timidity of the disciples, but he also mentions their lack of faith. Two things. And then in verse 41, wind and sea, waves, is mentioned again. Now this seems to me very, very deliberate, almost as if, as Peter is recalling the story for Mark, he's recalling these various uh, pairs. There's something about this event that really sticks into Peter's mind because it's orchestrated in such a way that we have these these two things uh, always uh, happening. And then uh, in verse 40, we have uh, these two things that ultimately are two problems in the hearts of the disciples. The disciples are afraid. 
that wind that seems to blow away their courage. And the disciples also have this kind of faith that can gain no traction on the waves. Despite everything that they've seen that Jesus has done, still their faith has no traction on these waves. This timidity, the wind blows away their courage, and and then this uh, lack of faith, smallness of faith, the waves present very little traction for their faith. And then you you see all of these two things, and then you come to verse 41, and then we go from two things to just one. Who then is this? I just think it's important that we see that in this passage. Uh, Take the passage home this afternoon. Uh, Read the passage over and over again. See if you see this as well. We have two, 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 and then who then is this? All of this happens because of, well, because of Jesus by himself at work. Who then is this? And, and really, that's the, the question of the passage. That really tells us where the application of this passage goes. And in fact, I think what this passage is telling us is that when we are battered with worry, battered with doubt, life does this to us. Well, when we're battered with worry and doubt, it's the singular victory of Jesus that is seen as our only assurance. You see how those two things go with the one thing. When battered with worry and doubt, Christian, it's the victory of Jesus alone that becomes your assurance. Well, that's where uh, I'm going with the passage, but let's begin rather positively, shall we? In the first two verses, uh, let's uh, drill down on these disciples and let's, let's give the disciples some credit here because in the first two verses, the disciples seem to be filled with purpose. Filled with purpose. And it's not always going to be that way. In verse 37, they'll become filled with indulgent self-care. That's the second point of the sermon. But look at the beginning. They seem to be filled with purpose. Mark says, on that day when evening had come. Uh, he's connecting this scene with which, what, the scene that's come before. Uh, Jesus, what's he been doing? He's been preaching through parables. And he has been uh, showing them what those parables mean. Explaining them himself. And really what he's doing with these parables and his explanation is he's telling them how humans work. Humans are going to make up all kinds of things. Humans need to understand that, the, that Jesus is himself the revelation of how to view uh, the world around them and how to view themselves. Jesus has been telling them how humans work. They need him to explain everything. But he's also been telling them how the kingdom of God works. God's royal influence is dynamically growing. It's invisible and it's mysterious, like the, like the growth of a seed, but it's always going towards this great restorative goal. Uh, God's kingdom is here and now, and it's growing, and it's growing to a specific objective that God has for his kingdom. And really, that's what Jesus has been doing on that day when evening had come, well, that day, Jesus is telling them how humans work, and he's telling them how the kingdom of God works. And the disciples, they've taken all of this in, and right now, they're filled with purpose. They know that the kingdom of God is here. That's what Jesus has been telling them, and they're encouraged by that. And they also know that Jesus has to reveal to explain these things, but they have Jesus with with them as well. And so when verse 35 appears, Jesus says this, Let us go across to the other side. And when he says that, everything seems rather okay. 
I mean, perhaps the disciples don't know where he's going, and perhaps the disciples are really just ready to get away from the crowds. That may be true. But when Jesus says, let us go across to the other side, the disciples are energetic. They're filled with purpose, with confidence. I think that's how we are to understand verse 36 when Mark tells us that they took him with them in the boat just as he was. You see that leadership of the disciples. They took him with them in the boat just as he was. Jesus, he gives the order, and they are fishermen. Most of them are fishermen. It's almost like that orders music to their ears. We can do that. You've been telling us about the kingdom. Uh, you have been uh, telling us that you are the one who uh, reveals all things to us. And now you want us to get into a boat and go to the other side. We can do this. We can do this. And so they're filled with deliberate action, trust, purpose. Now you felt this in your life as a Christian, and I have as well. And sometimes we have this kind of heart in our walk. There's, there's no worry there. There's no doubt. Uh, we feel close to Jesus, our prayer life as well. We've uh, just done our devotions. Uh, life is okay. It seems as though the, the will and purposes of God are aligned with the will and purpose of ourselves. Life seems to be okay. But Christianity is not meant just for fair weather. And you and I need to hear that because this purpose, this deliberateness in the hearts of the disciples is about to change dramatically. And yet the Christianity that comforts us in fair weather is a Christianity that comforts us in stormy weather as well. And the disciples are about to learn that. So in the first two verses, we're beginning positively. The disciples are filled with purpose. But in verses 37 and 38, the disciples now are filled with an indulgent kind of self-care, self-preservation. Because look at verse 37. A great windstorm arose. Now most of them, not all of them, are fishermen. Most of them, they're not panicking immediately. They know how to deal with storms at sea. And those who don't, like Matthew, the tax collector, uh, he is surely comforted by being with all of the fishermen in the boat. It looks stormy, but no one's panicking yet. In 1986, I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago, but in 1986, there was a big drought in the Middle East. I'm sure uh, you didn't know that, but there was. And what happened is the Sea of Galilee, it receded. And as it receded, it actually revealed a Galilean uh, fishing boat. It was discovered by a couple of fishermen. Now, that fishing boat is very similar to the fishing boat that the disciples would have been using uh, this very evening. Uh, the boat was uh, rather long, 26 and a half feet, had a single mast, about seven and a half feet across the beam, and very much the dimensions of a FedEx delivery van. And imagine sawing the top off of it, turning its shell into a hole and climbing in it. It's not that big. Ordinarily, there would be 15 uh, men in the boat. Five of them, four of them perhaps, dedicated to uh, navigating it, keeping it straight, and they certainly had enough fishermen in the boat. But it's close. It's crowded. And this windstorm in verse 37 is not an ordinary windstorm. It's a great windstorm, and so great, in fact, that the waves begin to break, to break into the boat. They're uh, technically coming over the gunwale, and the boat, uh, Mark tells us, is already filling with water. 
Now, things go from bad to really bad, seemingly in minutes. And so suddenly, this isn't a good sign even for a seasoned fisherman. But then think about the dimensions of this boat and then think about the response of Jesus. These disciples are panicking. They're doing everything that they can to keep the boat uh, upright. They're not driving the boat, piloting the boat, just keeping it upright, keeping water out of it. But the response of Jesus, who's just right there, he's just in the stern of the boat. That's the back of the boat. Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. Literally, Mark says, and he's the only gospel writer to say this, he's sleeping on a head pillow. Now, it's evening. That makes sense. He's surely tired. Verse 36 says Jesus was uh, taken onto the boat just as he was. Perhaps that's a reference to Jesus being exhausted, absolutely tired. But it's evening. Why not go to sleep? As some have actually drawn comparisons in this scene with Jonah, he was another figure who slept on a boat during a storm, right? He's not the example. Jesus is the, uh, is the opposite of Jonah. Uh, Jonah's running away from God, and Jesus seems to be absolutely and completely content in his sleep. This is true sleep with a good conscience. This is a sleep that's right in line with God's plan. Jesus isn't worried at all. Jesus doesn't doubt at all. And notice that great uh, distinction between the disciples and Jesus. Because the, the, the response of the disciples is not merely to keep the boat upright. Although that's probably central to their minds. The response of the disciples is also to run to Jesus running, right? So a few feet. And on the surface, it seems like that's, that's rather noble. They want to warn Jesus to save him. Jesus, you're going to sleep right through your own death. And there might be a little bit of nobility because uh, they uh, want to arouse Jesus because he is after the one who uh, is the most important figure on this particular FedEx van-sized vessel. He is the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God. That's what he's been telling them on the shore. And he is the one who is necessary to reveal everything about the world around them but about their own hearts. And so maybe there's a little bit of nobility running to Jesus and to wake him because he's the most important figure. But no... That's not what Mark tells us about this rushing to Jesus. They rushed to Jesus that they might accuse him. And they accuse him of not being like them. Wasn't Jesus just the one who was telling them how to understand their own hearts? And now they arouse Jesus that they might tell Jesus how his heart should be. They're filled with care for themselves. And what they say to Jesus in verse 38 is, A teacher, do you not care? This is a time for intense caring, for great attentiveness, for thoughtfulness about the circumstances in which you find yourself. And Jesus, you're none of these things. Well, Jesus doesn't seem to exercise care in the same way that the disciples exercise care. Jesus cares for himself. He takes care of his body. He eats and he, and he sleeps. He's doing that now. And not only that, Jesus takes very good care of the disciples. Now, they're going to see that in the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus, he's cared for them. He's appointed them. He has desired them, befriended them, been with them. 
Jesus is full of care, but it's a very different kind of care. That Jesus never has this kind of self-indulgent, self-preservation, self-care that the disciples have. It's just minutes ago these disciples were filled with a sense of purpose and now they're terrified for their lives. And rather than trust that Jesus knows how to discern the situation and rather trust that Jesus knows uh, better than they do how God unfolds his wonderful kingdom, they arouse him to tell him, Jesus, you don't know better than us. And although Jesus is never like this, he understands exactly what they're going through, these disciples. Look what he says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Timid, cowardly. It's a, it's a bit of an ugly word for afraid that's used in this passage. Why are you so afraid? And have you still no faith? The still is emphasized. Given everything that you've seen, have you still not seen enough? You know, when Jesus knows this about the disciples, there's virtually not a single commentator during the Protestant Reformation that thinks that the disciples are about to lose their conversion. Jesus' comments in verse 40 are not that they are losing their converted life, that if you don't shape up, you will no longer be Christians. And Peter knows, well, Jesus knows, that the storms reveal certain things about our relationship with him. And Peter, he remembers exactly what was revealed to him when Jesus made these words in verse 40. Peter knew they were cowardly, and Peter knew that they were resisting belief in the implications of the good news of the gospel. Peter knows very well that there's just one thing that mattered to them, physical existence. We're perishing, Jesus. Why don't you seem to care in the same way that we care? And I want you to just imagine yourself in that boat, and I want you to think about yourself. Would you have that kind of singular care, care for physical existence? And do you have that singular care today? Are you, only care, are you only concerned about physical life? Are you only concerned about personal comfort? Is that you? Can you imagine what your life would be like if you were liberated from that? If life was valuable, important, but not ultimate physical life. And if personal comfort was valuable, even important, but not ultimate. Would your life be any different if your physical life was not ultimate and if your personal comfort was not ultimate. It would be different, wouldn't it? And the disciples in this moment, they miss that. The wind, it's blown away all of their courage and their faith, it has no traction on these slippery waves. But we feel this as well in our lives. But then something amazing happens. You remember the the disciples are filled with purpose, and now they're filled with self-care. But in verse 39, something amazing happens. They become filled with great fear instead. Now, to be filled with great fear is very, very positive. That's where we need to be as Christians. But notice what Jesus does here. He does three things. Verse 39, don't skip this. He awoke. Okay, three things. He awoke, he rebuked, and he instructed. There they are. But the first thing, we don't want to skip over this. Jesus awoke. He didn't shoo them away. You ever been shooed away by a kid you've tried to wake up in the morning? Have you ever shooed anyone away trying to wake you up? I know both of these experiences well. But Jesus, he doesn't shoo them away. He's exhausted. It's evening. It's time for sleep. 
but he awoke. Praise God. And the second thing he does is he rebukes. And really what he's doing is he's rebuking creation. He rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, he's addressing the, the wind and the waves separately with two words. It may be that peace was directed to the wind. Be quiet. We could literally translate that. Be quiet. And perhaps his command, be still, is directed to the waves of the sea. Uh, Be still literally means be muzzled, be constrained. God is the great constrainer of the sea. And then immediately, verse 39, the wind ceased and there's great calm. He saves them. He rescues them. He awoke and he rebuked. But he also instructs, and this is exactly what he was doing as he was teaching them the parables. He's explaining the parables, and he's telling them how to understand what's just happened. And so in verse 40, he instructs them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I want you to pay attention to something here very quickly. When Jesus awoke, did he already know this about the disciples? Did he already know that they were afraid and that they had no faith? Did he know that? He, of course, knew that. But when he awoke, he immediately knew these things about them, that they are faint-hearted, that they are cowardly when they shouldn't be. He knew that their faith was losing traction, even though he's done so much and shown them so much about himself. But he wakes up nonetheless, and he deals with the wind, and he deals with the waves. What have I just explained to you? That the hallmark of Christianity is grace. It's his initiative for you, his pursuit of you. He doesn't expect you to reach a certain level in your understanding before he saves you. You're beyond that. The hallmark of Christianity is that Jesus saves without you deserving that salvation. He takes the initiative. He awoke and he calms the storm. And he knew that you didn't deserve it. So what's really happening here? What's really happening here is in verse 40, they've learned something about themselves. And by learning something about themselves, they see something about their great need. And they see that in Jesus. They've just seen it unfold. And they are filled with great fear. And they say to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Their fear is changed, and the fear is now reverence. And uh, and Mark, he deliberately uses a different word here. The fear has become reverence. They had him, but they didn't know that they had him. He's with them, but they didn't realize the implications of him being with them. Who then is this? There's a few images here that I think are important, and I'd like for you to write these down. There's three Old Testament images that are uh, uh, going uh, around in their heads, and I think they, cu- they unfold before the disciples in this order. The first thing, when they ask, who then is this, the first thing that they're noticing is this Old Testament image of God being the creator of the wind and the waves, that God alone is able to create and to bound up that which he has created. The first Old Testament image image that springs to mind is that, wait a minute, who is this? Jesus has done something that only God can do. Jesus is God. 
The first Old Testament image is one of uh, the image of the creator God doing what only the creator God can do, and yet Jesus has just done this. The second Old Testament image is the uh, greatest picture in the Old Testament of the taming of wind and the taming of waves is actually the picture of God leading his people through the Red Sea. The Red Sea is, is pushed back by wind and dry land remains. That's the big image of God training water and wind. And so this image is an image that shows that not only is Jesus God, but Jesus actually has more power and authority than Moses himself. Jesus is the great rescuer taking God's people into the promised land. He is the only one that can do that. And the third Old Testament image is this. It's one of Noah's Ark. And I wonder if you little theologians had this image in your head earlier. That great storm where Noah's Ark is the only place of safety. And yet these waters become waters of judgment. And Jesus is the one who deals with that judgment and makes the judgment calm. It's actually a picture of reconciliation. That Jesus, he's the only one who has the power to deal with God's judgment. That image would also be on the minds of the disciples. Jesus is God. Jesus is the rescuer who brings them into the promised land. And Jesus is the substitute who deals with God's great judgment that they might be safe eternally. I want to bring this together. I think those are three Old Testament images that are uh, in the disciples' minds, if not immediately over time. Who then is this? This is him. He is God. He's a rescuer, and he's our substitute. But everyone here in this room right now knows that storms are a part of our life. And Jesus is asking us then, why? Why is it then that the wind is able to blow away your courage? Why is it then that your faith is losing traction on these waves despite all I've done for you? And as Jesus asks asks us that question, in this present life, dealing with storms, the great application is for us to search out the question, who is this? Who is my Lord? Who is my King? Who is my Rescuer? We're supposed to experience these storms, but we're supposed to take this light-handed rebuke that Jesus has for us. John, why is the wind able to blow away your courage, and why is your faith losing traction during this storm? John, do you know who I am? Do you know me as your Lord? Do you ponder me? Do you seek me out? Do you study to learn more and more about me? And as Jesus says that, you ought to see something fighting against that. And that something is you trying to save yourself. It's you trying to problem solve your way out of this storm. But with Jesus, the great windstorm becomes a great calm. And with you, the great windstorm becomes mildly tamed for that day alone, if that. But with Jesus, the great windstorm becomes a great calm. And when Jesus asks you, who am I? Who is this? Well, then learning about him, the great calm gives you a great reverence. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. This is the Christian life during a storm. When battered with worry and doubt, Christian, would you ask yourself afresh, 
Who is this Jesus that I believe? Well, Jesus is the victor who is your only assurance, and you have him in any storm. Well, would you join with me in prayer, and we'll confess our faith. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus to serve us by saving us. We thank you for his work fighting all of our enemies, and we ask that you would strengthen us against worry and against doubt, that we might learn more of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ alone. In his name, amen.